Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to the LA Soccer Hub Show. My name is Gio Garcia. Today is Tuesday, January 26th. We're to the last week of January. And today we're talking MLS, man. We got the MLS League. They finally released the dates. The season's going to start on April 3rd through the 4th. We also got the dates of the preseason. It's going to start February 22nd. And here to join me today, we got Paul Tenario from The Athletic. Paul, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Like I said, uh, I've been covering, I've been watching your work and what you've been doing with Athletic. And like I was telling you earlier, I got a membership to Athletic just because of, you know, the articles and everything you guys have been doing. Um, so I love your work and I'm ex- excited to have you on here. Um, before we get started, uh, tell us how you got started with the Athletic and how long you've been covering the MLS. Yeah, man. Well, first of all, thank you for subscribing. Um, really excited to be at the Athletic and to have the team that we have there. Um, I think we have the best uh, American soccer coverage in the country because of the people that we have. We're lucky enough to have the support of the company and have writers like Sam School and Pablo Mar, uh, Felipe Cardenas and Matt Pence, uh, Meg Linehan, um, Jeff Reuter. So um, very, very lucky to be a part of that team. Um, I started off my career uh, back in 2007. Um, I worked at the Washington Post um, at that point in my career. I spent five years there and, um, you know, I, I played soccer my whole life. Um, you know, my dad's from Costa Rica. So where I, I grew up in a household where that was the main sport and it was the sport he knew, you know, he didn't really know American sports to teach me. Um, and so that was, you know, that's, that was my whole life. So when I got to the post, even though Steve Goff was there, who, you know, we all know as a, a top soccer writer in the country, you know, he was great in that he let me um, start to write about soccer right away. And so, you know, I helped out on DC United and US soccer, but really I tried to make um, kind of youth soccer and the development academy my main beat. You know, I wrote about the the DA as it started to um, come alive and and become a thing and wrote about youth development a ton. Um, And after five years at the post, I left to go to the Orlando Sentinel. Um, I covered college football for a couple of years, UCF, back in the Blake Bortles years when they went to the Fiesta Bowl. And then, um, you know, I got lucky again, Orlando city, you know, landed in my lap and uh, my editors there knew that I was a big soccer guy that I had experience covering MLS. So I started covering Orlando city's transition into MLS, the expansion year and um, did that for a couple of years and, and then got hired by four, four, two as a national soccer writer, um, you know, covered, covered the league in U S soccer for four, four, two until when, when the U.S. failed to qualify for the World Cup, 442 decided to pull out of the American market, and I became a free agent. Um, and then eventually, the Athletic uh, started to hire a soccer team, and that's, that's when I landed there. So that was, I've been at the Athletic since um, 2018. Sorry, 2018, I think. Yeah, now <laughs> time flies. Um, and, you know, I, I've been really lucky to um, – you know, to be working there. You know, I started in May of 2018 and 
um, you know, we built our team out last year and um, yeah, it's been, it's been really, really great. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would have to agree with that. I definitely uh, believe you guys have the best, you know, soccer insiders, you know, in, in the U S and just the work you guys do. And, you know, that's why I was like, yo, I gotta, I gotta get this, uh, I gotta get the subscription, you know, and like, and actually it's funny. I have a friend who works for the Clippers. Uh, he, he works for the athletic and that's when I, cause uh, you guys are fairly new, right? Or well, the athletic is fairly new and you guys are subscription based. And, you know, I, that's how I found out about it through him and, yeah, the work, the work you guys put in, man, it, it's great. And like, you know, for the people listening, if you have it and you're thinking about getting that subscription, especially if you're into MLS or you're into LAFC, LA Galaxy stuff, uh, it's, it's definitely worth it. I think it's only like 50 bucks, 50, 59 bucks for the year. I mean, that that's nothing. I mean, so it's definitely uh, good to, you know, you get your money's worth is what I'm going to say. So now let's, let's talk about the, you know, what's going on with MLS. Obviously we knew yesterday uh well you were the first one to, to, to break the news you know about you know the, the the actual dates coming out you know the season being started in april uh but it's been a rocky road to start the year with the mls and the mlspa and as we all know who anybody that has social media who has twitter knows that both sides don't seem to be on the same page and this goes back to last year right and even before before uh COVID happened that they were negotiating so now we're here uh let's start a little bit of the timeline uh the league decided to to invoke the forced majority right in in their contract with what i saw from twitter is what from the mlspa that they were kind of surprised that they would do that um and you know we saw some backlash we saw you know the mls put out uh, you know, a letter to the fans, but then the MLSPA came out and pretty much, you know, they tweeted at next time at us. So you could tell that they, then they weren't really getting along. Um, so tell, so tell us where we're at right now and how we got to at least release the dates for the season. Yeah. I mean, right now we're in the middle of another negotiation you know, this is the third time that the PA and the league have been negotiating a CBA in the last year, which is crazy. I mean, usually these these negotiations are once every five years, four years, five years. So, um, you know, it's tough to say where we are right now. They've they've traded um, back and forth now offers. The league made an offer. The union took its time and kind of reviewed that, uh, went through its processes. It p- provided a counter offer. The league's now coming back off of that counter offer, um, and so there is this back and forth. Now Thursday is this quote unquote deadline. It's not really a deadline. I don't care what Don Garber says. It's a self-imposed deadline. Um, basically, what happens is when the league triggered the force majeure clause, which it only just negotiated into the CBA before MLS is back, what that force majeure clause says is there is something going on in the landscape that doesn't allow business as usual to be run under the terms of the CBA. It cannot be sustained. Or in the case of Major League Soccer, they had a specific line in the CBA that says if something is having a material impact on attendance, that they could trigger force majeure. Well, we know the pandemic is still going on. We know that you're not going to be able to have full capacity stadiums right now in 2021. And so that allowed them to trigger that force majeure. And the moment they did that, what it did was it opened a 30-day window to negotiate, to try to figure out a, um, a solution to change the terms of the CBA. Now, there's no deadline at the end of that 30 days. These two sides could continue to negotiate. And, you know, the the league doesn't have to terminate the CBA at the end of the 30 days. It doesn't have to lock the players out. The players don't have to strike at the end of the 30 days. 
fact, we don't have to look that far to see an example of this. The NBA also triggered the force majeure clause because of the pandemic. They pushed back their deadline five times, five times before finally coming to an agreement on November 9th. And that, and we know the NBA season's underway. They reached the solution, but it took five times of pushing back that deadline. So this week we will find out what happens when that deadline hits. I believe that the league will stop with this kind of hard line nonsense and push back the deadline because to not do that and to lock the players out to create a work stoppage, it opens up a whole new territory of, you know, possibilities and uh, an extended work stoppage for major league soccer, I think would be really, 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 really bad for the reputation of the league in the global soccer community um, and for the growth and the momentum of the league here in, in these, in the United States and in Canada in its home markets. Yeah. So I, I, that's interesting that, that you say that, that, you know, cause we've seen, well, right. If we, other, uh, we watch other sports, right. We're, we're, and what you're saying is, you know, what the NBA is doing. And I'm also very interested if they do push it back because you would assume it, even if they don't come to an agreement, right. That that would make sense for them to push it back because the other, the other alternative seems too drastic when you already release the dates of the preseason and of the, you know, of when the actual season's going to start. If you, if you were to do that, um, one, it would look bad, not just on the MLS, but on Dark Garber and, you know, what's been going on. A lot of the speculation is the reason why the, ML, the, the MLS, the league, Dark Garber decided, uh, you know, to do the Ford majority call is because some people look at it uh, as, as, as an opportunity for the MLS and the MLS owners to you potentially, you know, uh, make more money or get an opportunity or just to use the pandemic is what I've seen in, you know, some of your articles. And then the other side, uh, what the owners and the league is arguing, the reason why they invoke that is because, you know, they've lost so money. Obviously we know that, what is it like 80, 90%, don't quote me on these numbers, but they make their money off of ticket sales, you know, in-game sales. That's how they make the money. Obviously there's no fans or barely any fans, depending if you're in California, there's no fans going to stadium. There weren't any fans. But if you're in other markets, there are some fans that could go in there. But that's the kind of their, their counter, the counter argument. How, how do you see how do you see those arguments? Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly right. Sam State School just wrote a column about it. It's, it's this this idea of is this force majeure negotiation born out of necessity? Do the owners really need to do this as the design of force majeure is right? It's, hey, we cannot sustain this. We have to do this. Or is it opportunism? Do they see an opportunity to take advantage of this moment and try to build in some long-term benefits for the owners? And I think it's, it's difficult to argue against the latter, not just based on my opinion, but based on the statements of the league itself. And what the league and Don Garber and Mark Abbott, the commissioner and deputy commissioner have both said is, hey, we as owners are capable of taking on the short-term pain. We can survive these losses. Why? Because they're billionaire owners. Um, you know, the 10 of the richest people in the United States also happen to be MLS owners. That doesn't even get into some of the other billionaires who aren't in that Forbes list, of which there are other owners. And they are more than capable of taking on these losses. In fact, you know, eight of the 10 owners in Major League Soccer have seen their net worth go up during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
I, I believe the average is by $1.4 billion each mm. um, on average. So, you know, they're saying they can survive the short-term losses and nothing that they're asking for is fixing the losses that they're suffering in 2021. But what they're saying is if we're going to take on those losses, if we are going to take the hurt, we need you, the players, our employees to give us something back in return. And what they're looking to do is to leverage the pandemic into significant gains on the back end of the CBA. When you hear, okay, they're going to extend the CBA by two years, you think, oh, that's not bad. The players don't have to take a pay cut. And, you know, all that happens is the CBA gets extended, but there's real consequences there. So as an example, before MLS is back, they agreed the players to take a 5% pay cut and to add a year onto the CBA and push back the terms of that agreement. By doing that for one year, by pushing back the terms of the agreement and adding a year onto the CBA, that was more than around $100 million in salary loan. In salary savings alone, that's not going into pushing back by a year the gains in free agency. That's not going into uh, bonus structures and how how much money is saved there year over year. That's not going into the twelve and a half percent revenue share that they gave back. That's not going into the gains that they would have made adding more to the revenue share in the next CBA negotiation that get pushed back a year. So think about adding two more years on, and and that's two more years of losses of significant losses because you're pushing back that negotiation where bigger gains are made. So, you know, in my opinion, based on what the league is saying, no, this is not something born out of necessity. The the ownership has said that they're saying we can take on these losses, but what they're saying is we don't want to take on the losses without you giving us something in return. And, and I think the question ultimately comes down to, do you believe that the employees of the league, that the players um, bear some responsibility to take on some of those losses as well. And, and I think that comes back to an idea like, you know, when an owner sells and all of these, the, we, we see what these team values are, right? Even for an owner who bought in like Orlando City, for example, you know, on a $40 million expansion fee, you know, Flavio Augusto da Silva, he can sell the club for $325, $350 million right now. You know, are those profits going to go to any of the players that played for Orlando City? Is he is he cutting a check for Chris Mueller on the profits? No, he's not. So why is Chris Mueller being asked to take on some of the losses? And and that's kind of my my take on it. But I think that's ultimately the question for for fans or for people watching this from from the outside is, do you believe that the owners are right? That right now they're taking on real losses. I'm not trying to say they're not taking on real losses, but that the players bear some responsibility to share in those losses with the owners. That's the question you have to ask yourself. Mm. Yeah, and, and and that that makes it interesting, right? We obviously, because we know God, this is what Don Garber had said that they the league itself has lost one billion, and some people have speculated that it may not be a billion, maybe you know, uh, you know, in the millions, maybe not a billion, but we don't, obviously, we don't know the numbers. They haven't released that information. And, you know, all right now, all we can do is speculate. And I think it also, you know, it also makes it very interesting because um, I think I was also reading that right now, they're not, they're, the players in the league, they don't do revenue sharing with the profits of what the actual league, is that correct? Like they do in the NBA? Yeah, the, there's no, there's no revenue share you know part of people have asked some of the 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 differences between the nba situation 
and the players and why the NBA players don't have to take a pay cut or why that hasn't been an issue. Well, that's because the NBA has a revenue share, right? Basketball related revenue is split between the owners and the players. Right now in MLS, there is zero revenue share. Now that is set to change in the course of this CBA where when the league signs a new media rights deal at the end of the 2022 season, that the way that this CBA was designed, that was that in 2023, which was supposed to be the penultimate year of the CBA. And in 2024, the last year of the CBA, the players were supposed to take a 25% revenue share after $100 million. I believe 100, it might've been 125 after $125 million of profit above the current deal. So you take the current deal, you give the owners the, the expected increase in their revenue from the new media rights deal. And after that increase, the players get a 25% share of that revenue. That was the first revenue share that's ever been won by the players in the CBA. Now, already the players have agreed to slash that first year of revenue share in half from 25% to 12.5%. Also, that first year of revenue share is no longer 2023. It's been pushed back to 2024, right? So these are some of the losses that you're seeing, right? You went from what was supposed to be a 25% revenue share in 23 to a 12.5% share in 24 and not a 25% share until 25. Um, but that's the first revenue share. So, uh, you know, I, I also want to point out that that's an example mm -hmm. of the type of gains that occur in a CBA negotiation. Yep. which when you talk about pushing back the terms of the CBA, those are the types of gains that you're pushing back that we can't even do the math and yeah. say, Hey, this is what they're losing out on because we don't know how much they might gain. And in the last two B two CBAs, they made huge gains in 2015. They gained free agency. The first professional sports league in this country to gain free agency, a form of free agency without a work stoppage in 2020, they gained a revenue share. So what were they going to gain in 2025, you know, we don't know that yet, but we know it's now a year further back, right? And and the league wants it to be three years further back than when it was initially bargained just last January and February. Yeah, and that, that right, the percentages, if you cut those percentages in half, like, right, so if the league is growing, right, we know, obviously now, you know, even clubs in Europe are, are coming out here to recruit players and all these things you would assume that the TV deal, whenever it gets renewed, I think you said 2022, it could be worth so much money, right? Because let's say it's worth a billion dollars, for example, and you go from 25% from what the players were going to get off of that revenue stream to 12%, they, they lose out on that money. And the people that get that money are going to be the owners in the league, right? And that's, you know, that's how you, that's why people see this as an opportunity for owners to give as little percentage to the players right and that's a way how they recuperate their money um but it, it doesn't it, it if you're a player and you know right if you're the mspa i you got to look at this and i, I think that's why they're, they're starting they're they're holding their ground firm right because they know what what the future is and how the league is also growing for them right and they don't want to be able to uh, undercut their players if they you know if they agree to something that may not be beneficial for them yeah, well, well, there's a couple of things I want to talk about there. Let's talk about the future of this league. This is the difficulty of any CBA negotiation for a player pool. You have the short term, the, the today that these players are living. 
it's understandable why they want the, the league to pay them 100% of what they're contractually obligated to pay them. So when we hear the league say, we're going to let, we're going to let them keep hundred percent of their salary. You're contractually obligated to pay hundred percent of a salary. This is not charity to say, well, we're not going to give you a pay cut. No, you're obligated to pay that. Right. First of all, but if these players, you know, they have to say, can we afford to take a pay cut in the short term? No, most of them can't. Many of MLS players are still living in a way paycheck to paycheck. Maybe not the way, you know, most middle-class families are, but certainly some players are who are on 81,000 a year or 90,000 a year. And even the players who are on 250,000 who have multiple kids and have bought a house based on the salary they're making, you know, taking a 30% hit, that hurts. But you've got to weigh that against the long-term for the player pool of which you might not even be a part of that pool, right? That's the hard part. You know, convincing a player who's looking four or five years down the road and saying, 2026, I'm not even going to be here in 2026. I don't care about if it's a bad deal for 2026. But the whole idea of a union is you're not doing this just for yourself. You're trying to make gains that will make things better for the next player and the next player and the next player. So there's that part of the future. Then we, we talked about the, the media rights deal ends in 2022. So in January of 2023, at, well, I guess in December of 22, that deal will end. We'll see the negotiation start for this next, well, it's already started, but we'll, you know, they, they want the new deal to start 2023. So there's this huge moment, what they hope is a huge moment, at least for the league. Then you've got three years past that, the 2026 World Cup. It's supposed to be a massive springboard event for Major League Soccer and for the sport in this country. Both of these things are happening on a parallel path to what we're seeing right now, which is Weston McKinney at Juve, Serginio Dest at Barcelona, Tyler Adams at Leipzig, Christian Pulisic at Chelsea, Gio Ren at Dortmund, Josh Sargent at Werder Bremen. You know, go down the list, you know, and now from MLS, Alfonso Davies at Bayern, Brennan Ehrensberg at Salzburg. Um, you know, Reggie Cannon going to Boa Vista, Brian Reynolds going to Roma, all these things, Caden Clark going to Leipzig, right? All these things are happening. This momentum's moving. And so we know that gains are coming. We know things are getting better. The players know that too. And so does the league. And so by pushing back the terms of this agreement, if they can get these two years tacked on, it does two really important things for the league. It syncs up the CBA where they can sign that next TV rights deal in 2023 and sync it up with the end of this CBA, make it a four-year deal. And that way the players can never negotiate off of the gains of a media rights deal. They always have to guess when we think you're going to get this much more. So that revenue share that they want to be able to increase and have some solid numbers and some ideas of the revenue the league is bringing in, in order to say these are the gains we want to see in salary cap and bonus structures and all these different things. If they can, if the league can sync up those deals, it makes it harder for the players. Mm-hmm. The second major part of this adding two years on is the world cups in 2026. There's going to be a significant amount of momentum expected for major league soccer in the fall of 2026 going into the 2027 season, right? So you capture the excitement of the world cup. You come right back onto the fields in the fall, maybe you make a couple big signings coming out of that World Cup tournament and you 
and you look at January and you say, we're going to add even more players who got excited about the World Cup in the U.S. And imagine if there was another labor negotiation in January of 2027. Not great for the league, right? No momentum. There's, there's a real leverage point there that the players have if the league has to be worried about losing that World Cup momentum. By adding two years on to the CBA, they would push that negotiation to the end of 2027. So that would give them a year and a half bubble outside of the World Cup where they don't need to worry about losing leverage in a negotiation and they can ride that World Cup wave. And they can say after the World Cup, we're going to add more money. We're going to sign more players. But we don't have to worry about the CBA. We're going to add another TAM another young money U22 fund, right? We're going to add another discretionary bucket of money that the majority of the player pool doesn't get to benefit in, but we don't have to worry about it because we don't have a CBA negotiation. So these are really, really, really big, important parts of this negotiation that are about the leverage of these negotiations, the timing of these negotiations, and are very much about the growth of the sport in this country as we're seeing it play out right now. Yeah, I mean, so much there is, it, right? If you if you see what, what you're saying, right, that it does really come off that the owners are really looking at this opportunity to bank on the World Cup being in, in the U.S. or in North America, I should say Mexico, U.S. and Canada in 2026. Um, and, you know, and not give any of the players – any of the one, any of the leverage or any of that money that comes from that World Cup and all the excitement that will be here in this country. And that's essentially right now in 20, what, 2021, what they're what they're negotiating or, you know, holding firm on that they don't, you know, if, if you're a league that wants to grow and you're the MLSPA, I, I think you have to stay firm, right? You have to stay firm on what you want and not give up that leverage because, Right. Like you mentioned, you, you're supposed to get 100 percent of, of, of your of your salary. Right. And I understand that, you know, some 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 states may or may not have fans, but it look it's looking like we may have fans, uh, you know, maybe when it comes to April or May, whenever the, the you know, we have the full swing of things. But if you're the MLSPA, right, Paul, you're, you're, you're the MLSPA. We know that they also got players like, you know, here, our very own LAFC, Mark Anthony K. They got, you know, he's on he's on the executive board there. What would you do? What would you recommend them to do? Yeah, it's tough because, look, let's be honest, man. Everyone is hurting right now, right, in this pandemic. People are losing, have lost jobs. Uh, restaurants are going under. You know, everyone's taking a hit. And people are looking at the players, and, and this often happens. They, You know, people don't sympathize with professional athletes, even if they're not millionaire or mostly not millionaire athletes like they are in the NBA or Major League Baseball or NFL. And so they're saying, well, I, I took a pay cut. Why can't you take a pay cut as the players? Right. And so I and I don't I do think that the players genuinely want the league to continue to grow. So you start to get back into this. OK, well, what can you do? Well, I think one thing is we know that Bob Foose, the head of the MLSPA, made a, made a really good point, and one I think is certainly going to factor into these negotiations, which is that the league keeps talking about a billion dollars in losses in 2020. However, you want to think of that, you know, revenue loss, which is not actual cash out of your, you know, that you're spending, but you, you potential revenue um, plus actual losses, right? But what Foose is saying is, hey, man. We already negotiated the 2020 losses when we renegotiated our CBA in 2020. 
We knew those projections. We knew you were saying a billion dollars in losses when we negotiated before less is back. We already gave you concessions for those losses. So let's let's just erase the one billion dollars from the conversation because it doesn't matter. We already negotiated our deal based on that. So now let's look at 2021. So now you're asking us, you're saying we're going to more of a hit in 2021 and the players need to take a part of that hit with us. Okay, well, we know, we're, we're fairly certain at least, that 2021 is not going to be as big of losses as 2020, right? We can anticipate that, I think, with a relative degree of confidence. Why? Well, we saw MLS finish out in 2020, and you're right. Some of the stadiums had fans by the end of the year. We know that they're not going to incur some of the expenses that they incurred in 2020, whether that's the extreme amount of tests that they held, the MLS's back tournament, the charter flights to pick players up from international duty, the charter flights to complete the rest of the season. Some of these things are going to sustain in 2021 to a certain degree, but we also have the vaccinations happening. And there is a belief that we'll see more fans going into stadiums by the summer and into the fall. So if you look at it in those kind of pockets, you say, okay, well, we gave up a year extension in the CBA, 5% pay cuts, uh, 70% reduction in our, I believe, 70% bonus in the bonus pool, uh, 12.5% in revenue share. That was a lot that the players gave up, right? You know, more than $120 million in salary savings, plus the bonus savings, plus the revenue share savings, plus the gains that would have come get pushed back a year in the CBA negotiations. So let's look at 2021. We expect fewer losses. So theoretically, we should be giving back less than what we gave back before. So two years on the end of the CBA is not less than one year and and salary cuts, right? It's not. And so that is where I think the players are going to stand. Now, where can you do that where where you're giving back less than you gave back last year, but you're not taking salary hits in 2021 for me there's maybe one place you look and that's the revenue share we talked about it. it's the first time the league is going to have any sort of revenue share you know maybe you do something where you know it was supposed to be 23 and 24 25 and 25 now it's 24 and 25 i might be one year off on my years here 12 and a half and 25 Maybe you eliminate that first year, 12.5%. The second year that was supposed to be 25 now goes to 12.5%, and you kick the real gains down to the next CBA. That's not an insignificant concession, right? You're giving up 100% of the revenue share in one year that you were going to have, and you're giving up half of the revenue share in the second year, and you're kicking back the real gains to the next CBA. You know, Maybe it's something like that. Uh, maybe it's something like bo- the bonus pool, is, is uh, you know, cut for the next two years in addition to that. I think there are places in the CBA where you can make these types of cuts and say, hey, okay, by your math, the league came out and said, we think adding two years on the CBA will be 100 to $110 million in savings. I don't think that's true, but that's what they publicly said. Mm-hmm. And say, okay, we can, we can find $100 million in savings or we can find... $150 million in savings without extending the CBA. And, and that I think is what the task of the, of the, the league is right now is, you know, can they be creative in finding something that approaches that hundred million dollar figure without, um, without real pay cuts and without substantial pay cuts and without um, adding years onto the CBA. 
Yeah, that, that, and I'm with you. And I think that that definitely seems, um, you know, seems what would make sense for the, you know, one of the ways for the MLS, to, you know, to push back and, you know, you know, have some leverage and say, hey, this is what we want. Because I, I just think, you know, just just as a fan, just as a journalist, I think, right, obviously, I don't own a team. I don't, you know, obviously, I didn't have that many losses. But, you know, we all had losses in 2020. But I think you would want your league to grow and you want your players to grow with you, right? If you're the league and you see, right, we have one of the best leagues in the world, which I think the NBA, right? And we see how they are kind of hand in hand and they don't have these big public, you know, um, disagreements like you do, like how you see in the MLS and the MLSPA, right? And you, you would, you would expect, right? You would, you would assume that, you know, a league that is growing, this fast and you know starting to get so much intention you'd want the players to grow and the mls play pa to grow with them but right now that doesn't seem the case seem to seem to be the case and i think that's why you're seeing so much of that disagreement and you know and to some people it's kind of hard that you know you want to push back you know you want to push it back a couple years and you know some people may not may not just understand it some fans like you know i don't care if they push it back let's just start the season we already we already extended the season uh an extra month because of this like you know let's not negotiate but i think if people really understand and everything you explained here it really does have effects for the future of an mls player moving forward yeah for sure i mean uh, there's no doubt and i think Look, I think we have to, to some degree, give credit to the growth of the league under the stewardship of Don Garber and of some of these owners, right? They've been, they've done things differently than I would have done it, but they've done it for a long time. That conservative approach worked. We've seen really steady growth for Major League Soccer and positive growth. Um, you know, I've always been kind of a vocal proponent that that growth can be accelerated, that they can spend more because these owners can't afford to spend more. Most of them certainly can't afford to spend more. Um, but, you know, credit where it's due that they, they've done things kind of very deliberately and it's worked. Um, but what's interesting to me about this whole negotiation is, you know, again, I want to emphasize like Major League Soccer's owners are some of the richest sports owners in the world. You know, and, you know, this is a time right now where I'm sorry to say, but like it's a soft market globally because of the pandemic. There are a lot of teams around the world who cannot take on the losses that they've taken on uh, during this pandemic. And we see, for example, what's happened in France with this TV deal that fell apart and the, the league and the teams are in real trouble because that revenue disappeared. And Sam Stasekul and I have talked on our podcast and, and written at The Athletic, like this was a moment, in our opinion, where Major League Soccer could have taken a big step forward, like, like skipped a couple steps and jumped further along in their development and with one really strong offseason, maybe two or three windows of more aggressive spending because their owners are in a better financial place than the rest of the world. Instead, the league has... You mean by like opposite. getting, so I don't mean to cut you off, but you mean yeah. by like bringing other players from other leagues yeah, by to going the MLS, and spending, right? right? Spend by, the money, bring, bring other America. players. Yeah, by going to South America and looking at these clubs that need an injection of cash right away and saying, okay, we're going to take some of these players that last year would have been $10 million players and we're going to pay you three and four million for them because you need that cash right away. And go to France where... You're going to be able to sign players on free transfers from teams that need to get the salaries off their books, you know, and, and not just in France and other places in Europe as well. 
you know, even somewhere like Juventus last year, they, they wanted to move money off their books. And Miami took advantage, depending on how you look at it, right? Like Iguain and Matuidi aren't exactly what I would build my team around. But, you know, they, they did bring these players in on free transfers, right? So here was this opportunity to do that kind of stuff, right? To be aggressive in the global market, find these soft spots um, where, where, where they're susceptible in the market to, you know, players are on a discount and, and you know, say, okay, we're going to loosen the salary cap. We're going to add another DP. We're going to add this new young money fund and we're going to really go and spend and, and get this league better quickly. Instead, the league is saying, whoa, 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 we lost a ton of money. We can't afford to take the hit, but like, we don't want to take the hit, right? Like, this is not how MLS works. Like, we don't like losing this much money. We already lose a lot of money in MLS. This is way more than we want to lose. And so instead of focusing on like, how much money we actually have and what we can do to, to accelerate the growth of this league. We're going to focus as much as we can on these kind of like gains with the players, right. In in the, in the CBA, these, these, this opportunity to leverage this pandemic into something that will help us keep the growth of the league on our terms and push back the time, the time limit on when, we have to factor in somebody else's terms, which is a CBA negotiation, right? If, they, if they're successful in getting two more years tacked on, they've added three years on to the window of when the players have any say over how this league grows. And it's kind of created this weird environment, right? Where like everyone was kind of holding their breath, like when is the league going to start? And like, they just announced April 3rd. We don't know that it's going to be April 3rd. Like if they lock players out, it's not going to be April 3rd. If these negotiations go poorly, it's not going to be April 3rd. And so all of a sudden, like MLS became a soft spot in the market, right? Like, like owners are like, Oh yeah. Like, okay. Maybe loaning Jordan Morris isn't the worst move. Like bare minimum, we're moving $650,000 off our books and he's only going to miss six weeks of the season. If he comes back on loan. Right. Paul Ariola from DC United. Hey, like, all right. He's, he's another guy who makes a million bucks a year. Like those owners are going to save money if they can move him. And other teams in Europe should be looking at MLS and saying, Hey, maybe we can grab a guy on the, on the cheap. If these owners are, are, are really worried about their money. So it's kind of weird. Like I, I looked at this as an opportunity for MLS to, to grow. And MLS, I think looked at it as an opportunity to control how they grow. And, and, you know, the end result is not the same, man. It's not the same between accelerating your growth and maybe pumping the brakes on it a little bit, which is what MLS owners are doing by trying to push the CBA talks. Well, the next round of CBA talks back two more years. Yeah, that, that's interesting because I, I do like your approach and I do like what, what you had to say there because you, you could have brought so many different players here, right? If you would have found the soft spot, no then doubt. you would have found, you know, those players that they wanted to move and you could have added more of that exposure to the MLS and, you know, expose more of the players to come over here and come and play. Right. And, you know, get, get yeah, some I mean, of those- you're going to see it. You're going to see it, right. We're going to keep seeing these players announced for MLS teams, which is kind of funny, right? Because at the same time, the owners are saying, Oh, we need you guys to give us something back. They're going and buying players, right. DPs and young, um, young money transfers under 22 player initiative is what the league's going to call it. Basically, it's, it's a couple more young DPs is what they've added to the mix here. Um, but imagine adding two or three more senior DPs. Imagine, you know, th- this could have been taken further is what I'm saying. And it's mm-hmm. not going to be taken there. Um, and that's too bad because I do think that 
Um, there is a window here for, for the league. And with something like the under 22 initiative, it's great that some teams are going to take full advantage of that, but it's a lot harder to hit on guys who make an impact right away for you who are 17, 18, 19 years old. You have a little bit better of a chance at 20 and 21, you know, certainly you, you expect more at 20, at 22, but like, if you want an impact player, that's going to help you for sure that you expect to help you right away. You, know, you want a player in their prime and, and the U22 initiative is not going to do that. So, you know, it's again, it's another example of MLS kind of creating a bucket of money with a lot of restrictions around it and saying, like, you can you can spend more, but only in this little space right here, because now that that makes sure that the, the high spending teams don't go way above the teams that aren't going to spend that money, you know, um, and it just feels like another example of, of MLS saying, yeah, yeah, we want to grow. Yeah, yeah, we see the potential here, but let's let's do it really slowly, right? Let's do it. Let's try to, you know, mitigate the risk. I don't think this is actually mitigating the risk, but let's just let's just take it nice and slow, nice and easy, and don't let the big spending teams get out there too far in front of everyone else who wants to just see their their franchise values go up while they, you know, take the cheapest route possible to be competitive either every year or every few years. Yeah, and I think that's also why, you know, I feel like some sometimes coaches from, you know, from international coaches struggle sometimes to build a roster, right? Because they got to get used to what is a DP and, you know, what is TAM? What is GAM? What is this? What is that? Even me, when I first started covering the MLS, I'm like, whoa, what do you, what do, you know, what does designated player mean? Okay, you know, they can make over a million dollars and it's not, you know, goes into the salary cap, right? And it just makes it so tricky, right? If you, if you're coming from different, you know, we've seen some coaches have great success, and we've seen here in LA Galaxy, you know, Guillermo Barroscoloto did not have success, and I and I feel like some of the struggles were to actually build a team through with the you know the Tam Gam, you know, in the, in the restrictions, you essentially have to do a lot more with less, right? And I think that yeah, I mean, that, that, that makes it that in, You don't have the you know in Europe if you buy a player and he doesn't work out. You say, okay, man, that's too bad. But in the next window, we'll buy another player in that position and we'll move on, right? And eventually we'll sell that player. Or we'll bury him on the team until his contract runs out or whatever. You can't really do that in MLS, right? Because there's a salary cap. You can't just buy a better player, um, at least most of the time. And so that's really where the the coaches who are coming in from the outside and the GMs, that's, that's a really big adjustment that you can't just go buy a better player. Um, and yeah, that makes things a lot harder. I, I actually think it, in some ways it makes things more fun from like a roster building perspective of like, you have like this puzzle you're putting together, but you're blindfolded and one hands behind your back. And like, <laughs> you know, like it's kind of like makes it more challenging and, you know, but it's so different from the rest of the world. And, and, and that's why, you know, that's why it's, it's been harder for people coming from outside the league to adjust though. I, I think that's, I don't want to say it's it's changing. I think certain, you know, I think the the level of the guys that are coming in from outside the league are getting better. Like I think Ernst Tanner in Philadelphia is one of the best GMs in Major League Soccer. So, you know, I'm not saying you can't be successful in this league coming from outside the league, but it it, it does have a ton of challenges. Yeah, and it's gonna it takes a little bit getting used to that. So just just to finish off with the, with the CBA, obviously we're gonna find out here in a couple of days. Um, you know, for some of the people listening to this, it's going to be on Thursday. Uh, do we have a time um, when they're, they're, they're going to announce or they're just going to say, hey, we came to a decision or, hey, you know what? 
we're either going to lock the players out or, you know, to your point that you said they may extend the negotiations because that's what you're saying. You have a feeling that they may extend the negotiations past January 28th because I think, was it Don Garber who set the, like, the, the time date? And I don't think he needed to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's 30 days past when they when they triggered this force majeure clause, right? So that's what that date is. And, and Don Garber is the one who said, like, that's the deadline. Um, no, there's no time because it's not a real deadline. Um, it, it's a self-imposed deadline. So we don't know yet if, if, if MLS is going to eventually call the union and say, okay, we need a decision by 6 p.m. on that day or whether they'll just say, okay, when we get to end of business, on that on Thursday, we'll have to make a decision or maybe they'll say, okay, by midnight Friday, when the clock ticks over, that's the deadline. There's not, they have to make a decision on that. I don't think there is a real deadline that exists. Um, but we'll, we'll I, I would anticipate that we'll probably end up hearing something on Friday about what, what ended up happening on Thursday. Um, you know, maybe, maybe late Thursday night. Um, but again, it's not a deadline. There's no legal reason why a decision has to be made on Thursday. Yeah, cool. Well, appreciate appreciate all your your insight on that. Um, the next topic I want to talk about, I want to talk about. Uh, I don't know if it was you, but you know, one one of you guys wrote at the Athletic about the the MLS homegrown territory territorial rule and the rights and what that means of having. Um, you know, for the instance, we'll, we'll talk about like Caden Clark, you know, right. He was born in Minnesota. Um, but because he was born in Minnesota, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm not getting this right, but because he was born in Minnesota, he was under Minnesota's homegrown rights or rules or whatever, because he was born, he never played in an academy. So they had, a, uh, New York, the Red Bulls had to pay a fee to own his rights, right. To get his rights to play even though he was never in the, in the Minnesota Academy. And that's all throughout the U S if you're, you know, in markets in Dallas, LA, you know, um, Chicago. And I think that what I was reading, how can you, you know, how can a, a, a team or a club have these territory rights of say 500,000 kids or what they said, there's no way that 500,000 kids in Chicago, we're going to, are going to play for Chicago, Chicago, you know, the, the soccer club, right. Or Dallas or FC Dallas, or, you know, Houston, the Houston dynamo. And, you know, the, the counter argument is to have an open market, right? So you can have scouts go everywhere and, you know, exercise all your scouts and just to be able to scouts all over, all over the place. So this seems to be like, you know, if you're an MLS team, you can't, you know, you can't get someone else's player because they're not on your market. But on the other hand, if you're a European club and you can come out here, you can set up a camp, you know, like Barcelona does in Arizona, you can get a player from essentially anywhere and, and take them to Europe but you can't do that MLS. It doesn't really make sense. Explain it to us. Yeah. I mean, I, you explained it pretty well there in that sense. Like it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. And basically the way MLS set it up is they, you know, again, this is, this is all about single entity, right? Everything in MLS is, you know, every player is under contract with MLS. They're not under contract with LAFC or the LA galaxy or whoever. Right. And so as a result of that, everything is about limiting competition between MLS teams because you know, you don't want to be bidding against yourself. And in the grand scheme of things, if you're signing a contract with MLS and not really with the teams, then you can, you would be bidding yourself up if two teams got into a bidding war. This is why discovery rights are a thing. They don't want the LA Galaxy to tell a player in Colombia, okay, I'll pay you 400,000 and I'll give you a transfer fee of a million and a half. 
And then Montreal comes and says, well, I'll give you a transfer fee of 1.8 million and I'll pay you 500,000. And then it goes back to the galaxy and they go up again. Well, that's really less bidding up MLS, bidding up MLS, right? So MLS wants to avoid that happening. They don't want to pay more than they have to. And that's why discovery rights exist. Well, the same concept is, is homegrown territory rights. Basically, they wanted, they told these owners, look, you have these incredibly valuable assets, and that is the kids in your area. And no other MLS team, we're not going to let anyone compete with you for these kids. If anyone good comes out of this market, they have to play for your team in MLS. And if they don't play for your team in MLS, you're going to get compensated for them, right? And at least in the sense of if that, if another team wants to bring them into their academy, right? So Caden Clark is the great example of that. Um, And that's a problem, right? Because to your point, you know, as Peter Vermees has quoted in my my article saying, any team from Europe can come in and, and scout for players in any city in America. Why can't MLS teams do that? Why can't a Portland Timbers or Sporting Kansas City who have much smaller home markets go to a market like Chicago or New York? to go find a kid, right? Or as Bob Bradley says, if you're a kid in the New York territory and NYCFC doesn't want you, they've got four kids at your position and they don't rate you. And you don't, you like to play possession. You're not a guy who's going to run in high press. So the Red Bulls don't want you. Why can't LAFC take that kid? If he fit LAFC's model and he's the second best kid in his position at his age group in LAFC's mind, Why can't they go recruit that kid? It's not always going to be a perfect fit with your team in that market. Or maybe you are from Minnesota, like Caden Clark, and you look at it and you say, Minnesota doesn't care about academies. They have no evidence of a youth pipeline at all. That's fine. That's their ownership choice. They pulled money out of the academy and they're devoting it to the the first team. They have a short-term model. Every year, they're going to take that money and they're going to reinvest it into the first team. And they're not going to worry about the long-term benefits of investing it in the academy. Fine. But as a kid in Minnesota, you're going to say, you know what? I want to go to a market where they are invested in youth development, where I have a clear pathway. And so I want to go to Dallas or Kansas City or LAFC or Philadelphia. Why can't that kid do that? It's counterintuitive. You know, the goal of this league should be defined. And by the way, this should be the goal of a single entity league. They should be saying we want as many of these assets as possible in the league. As many of these young players who are now being scouted by every team in Europe to be in MLS. That's got to be their goal. You know, it's better for MLS that Caden Clark ended up in New York, right? Versus Matthew Hoppy. They both came out of Barcelona Academy. Caden Clark left Minnesota, went to Barcelona. Matthew Hoppy left Southern California, went to Barcelona. Hoppy went straight from Barcelona to Schalke. And no one's talking about MLS when it comes to his development now, right? They're not. When Caden Clark goes to Leipzig, he'll be former New York Red Bulls homegrown player, right? He spent like six months in their academy and, and went straight to their second team, right? He, he's not really a New York Red Bulls product. It's better for MLS to do that from a single entity perspective. They, the more of these kids that they can bring into the league, the better. And what you're doing is you're saying, we want to restrict where you're looking. We want to trust that there's one guy 
the Academy director in Chicago, and his evaluation of 500,000 youth players is the only evaluation that matters for our league, from our league's perspective. That one Academy director makes the decision for that entire market of whether a kid's good enough to be a homegrown player in MLS. That's insane. That's insane. The league should want as many eyeballs from its league looking into as many markets as possible, finding as many players as possible, not for the teams, but for the single entity, for the league, for the growth of the league, for the the expansion of this pathway that we're seeing now from MLS to the European leagues. And, And ultimately, there's no longer, in my opinion, a good argument for not doing this other than Sorry, it's not even an argument. The arguments people are making are, one, they don't want it to become like AAU basketball, right, where you're recruiting and you're spending more money and outspending people and this and that. Okay, put in restrictions like the NCAA does. Create some punishments. Fine. Easy way to solve most of that, which, by the way, it's always going to occur anyways. Second of all, the owners are going to look at that and say, why would we give up this extremely valuable asset that we have, which is a monopoly over a major market, an entire market worth of kids? We own that. It's our monopoly. Why would we ever give up that monopoly? And that is where the battle lies. These owners are going to look at it and say, no way. It's way too valuable for me to pick up my monopoly. And, the, and it doesn't matter that it's better for the league. It's worse for me. And ultimately, that's where the, the decision has to lie. You know, do you do what's better for the sport and the league? Or do you do what's better for those singular owners in each singular market? Yeah, I think, And I think that to that point as well, where you're letting European clubs who can scout better than potentially you, you can. Yeah, even if you, you don't have even this monopoly, really have a monopoly. Yeah, you even if you have, have this monopoly, they're going to want to, like Bar- Barcelona can in Arizona or, you know, what, what I think I saw um, Roma's thinking about starting an academy. I think, what was it, New York? I think that, that you wrote. You know, they're going to come in a lot hotter and with a lot more attention to M- any MLS club because kids are going to want rather go there than, you know, potentially going to a Chicago or, you know, whatever, right? And I think that's no where, where you have these European clubs. They're just going to scoop these kids up and you're not even going to see yeah. them. We don't even need to, I mean, like, let's even put the academies aside, right? Like these, these, these academies that are getting founded in these partnerships, because usually they don't really yield anything. It's kind of a marketing ploy more than anything else, but it doesn't, you don't have to look that hard to see these players that are going directly to Europe, right? Brian Ko was a DC United homegrown player who decided to sign in Germany instead. You know, he looked at the situation and said, I don't really see a clear pathway at DC United and their financial offer to me is not that great. And I can go to Wolfsburg and I see a better path for me at Wolfsburg. Well, why couldn't he have also had an option and said, well, you know, Kansas City's made me a pretty good offer and I see what they did with Gianluca Busio. And yeah, you know, I think I would actually prefer to start an MLS at Kansas City rather than going over to Germany. That wasn't even an option for the kid, Mm -hmm. right? Josh Sargent, you know, there's now a St. Louis MLS team. At the time, Kansas City would have had the rights to Josh Sargent, who was playing for a, a DA Academy, St. Louis Scott Gallagher. Um, and, you know, he went straight to Germany, right? He, he went straight to Werder Bremen and he didn't go to Kansas City's Academy. 
well, why couldn't Chicago have made an offer or LAFC or the LA Galaxy or Seattle or Philadelphia and let him have an option to look at it and say, you know, maybe my best pathway is New York Red Bulls. And maybe it's thing as Caden Clark. They're going to offer me a straight up pathway. Luckily, in the case of Caden Clark, New York Red Bulls were willing to pay Minnesota United for a kid who had nothing to do with Minnesota United. What if they hadn't? Mm-hmm. Right? What if they weren't willing to pay? Then guess what happens? Caden Clark still goes to Leipzig. He just skips playing in MLS. Right? That the only reason that Caden Clark is going to be thought of as an MLS product is because the Red Bulls were willing to pay up to two hundred and seventy-five thousand and seventy-five thousand guaranteed in GAM to a team that had absolutely nothing to do with Caden Clark. That's the only reason why MLS is going to get any credit whatsoever for Caden Clark when he's playing in the Bundesliga. In other words, it was a disaster averted by one team's willingness to pay for something that they shouldn't have had to pay for. Mm-hmm. MLS should want to avoid it going the other way, right? They should want to avoid a team saying, nah, we're going to pass on paying you know, another MLS team, 50,000 or 75,000 or a hundred thousand for the rights to a kid that they've never coached, that they've never seen, that they passed on in their academy, that we rated higher than them. We want to invest in, and we have to also pay you. No, right. That should be what the league wants to avoid. And right now they, they, they haven't changed things. And I don't know that they will. It's a very, very heated debate in major league soccer, which way, which way this will go. You know, there are, there are people who believe vehemently that homegrown territory rights should stay in place. And there are people who believe really strongly that they need to go. And these are really respected people. I mean, in the story I did, it's Peter Vermees, one of the most, you know, successful coach GMs in major league soccer history. And Ollie Curtis, who's done a pretty darn good job with both the Red Bulls and Toronto FC. So, that just goes to show you that two of the um, smartest soccer minds in Major League Soccer are on opposite sides of this debate. Yeah, and no, and, and it doesn't make it easy. But I think if you have a monopoly like that, you're literally limiting, you know, limiting your exposure, and you only only having one person look out for such a big market. It just to me is mind boggling because it doesn't make sense. And you're gonna have even here, uh, you know, you had uh, you know, cases with uh, you know, LA Galaxy. You had I don't know if that's it was the same situation, but you had Uli Yanez, who I think he went to the Bundesliga, who who we all know he plays with the U.S. Uh, men's U17, I believe, and you know he was with their with their academy. He didn't come play with LA Galaxy. Maybe it was because other other things, but you're you're seeing uh, you've seen a lot of those players just go straight to, just go straight to Germany and not even come and play because they don't see an opportunity. Because I think according to your article, before like how a team is built, right? Like uh like the other Galaxy were built off the of stars. I think that's what you wrote in your article. And if you're a kid looking at that, you're like, there's no real pathway for me to go, literally play in academy play in Galaxy 2, and then go to Galaxy, go to the men's, the first team, right? Now you're starting to see that uh, Dennis to close started to sign. They signed uh, three, three, I think, academy players, and they all played for Galaxy 2, and you're starting to see that pathway. And I think, you know, things are starting to change, at least with the LA Galaxy. LAFC have done that now. They played, I think they started a 16-year-old Christian Torres, so you're starting to see that. 
But uh, I mean, to, to your point, to say that one player can play your system and rather he likes to play possession and it's better in Florida or whatever, I think that's where you're definitely going to lose a lot of those players. And it also gets very, very tricky, right? If you do just want to have one monopoly, you know, it's like, I think, how did, do you know how it works here in, in LA if, with LAFC and LA Galaxy, how, how that territory split up? Yeah, I mean, they basically just split the territory. Um, that's that's how it usually works in market. Now, there is an advantage for the Galaxy, and I believe for LAFC in that there's a, you know, usually they, what they do is they put a radius around the stadium, so 75-mile radius around the stadium. So it, it's much smaller for those two teams, but they, they do get players that are, like, directly in the vicinity. But really, the market is split. I mean, all you need to do is look at Efra Alvarez, if LAFC had come around two years, two or three years earlier, Efra's probably an LAFC player, right? He's from West LA. Mm-hmm. He, he's, East LA, he doesn't, East LA. or East LA, sorry. Yeah, not West Hollywood. He's in East LA. <laughs> yeah, he's in East LA, not too far from the training facility. His house is like, yeah, I did a right big there. story on Efra. I went to LAFC training and, and I drove like 10 minutes to Efra's house, you know? So um, that just goes to show you how much that market is split. But I would also point out, man, like you look at the Galaxy, you look at LAFC, right? And um, you have two really good MLS teams, two academies who are now starting to be really devoted to bringing professional players through. And there's no way, there's no way that they're going to find every kid in in LA. Not at all. It's way too big of a market. Too many kids. You know, they're going to be kids that they don't rate who are going to develop and they're going to be good enough. And right now, those kids are going to other club teams, which is fine. That's great. There are other teams that develop players. Matthew Hoppy is another example. Came from a club uh, where Benny Fieldhopper played and Bobby Wood played and Steve Birnbaum played, right? But you know, why shouldn't they have an option to go somewhere else in MLS? And ultimately, that's the question we have to ask with these homegrown territories. There's not a good enough reason why, you know, we shouldn't see Portland scouting in L.A. or mm-hmm. Kansas City scouting in Chicago or Philadelphia scouting in New Jersey. You know, Bob Bradley, who's from Jersey, should and he has relationships there, should be able to scout there. Tab Ramos, who had an academy in New Jersey, should be able to sign players from there if he wants to. We're wasting institutional knowledge. We're wasting relationships. We're wasting opportunities in a country where it's already hard enough to find as many kids as you can. We're yeah. making it even harder. There's yeah. no reason why we need to do that. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And uh, you know, I mean, so that's some of the, I mean, guys, if you guys are listening, that's some of the articles that, you know, Paul and the team over at Athletic, right? And it just, just gives you a lot of insight and a lot of knowledge about, where the leagues, you know, where the league is at and where, you know, certain things they can improve on and, you know, certain things that, you know, you could also educate yourself. And, you know, if you're, you're up, up and coming player, you know, and you see these things going on, you may, you have more information to make, to make your decision on. I want to go a little bit more on um Caden Clark. We're starting to see, right. We're, we're seeing with uh, New York Red Bulls, right. They're with, uh, I'm torturing Leipzig. How do you say the name that he's going to play with in the Leipzig? Leipzig. There we go. Um, his transfer fee. I think I was reading an article. It was like it's only two to three million dollars. While all these other kids have gone for six to eight million dollars. Let's talk about that because they're saving. They're this, essentially the same entity, right? They have they have they have a club in Germany. We have also have a club here in the MLS but they're saving themselves money by only charging 
themselves for two million dollars or realistically he may be worth more than that yeah i mean look it's the advantage right of having multiple clubs in multiple countries it's the same thing that city football group does right you know we see it and basically in a, in a way it's a way around financial fair play right ffp rules which essentially what that does for the european teams is the goal of ffp is to prevent teams from taking on too much debt right like we learned today that barcelona's in over 1 million 1 billion dollars of debt i think it's like 1.18 billion dollars in wow. debt like that's not sustainable right and and a lot of these clubs were taking on huge amounts of debt to buy players and the transfer market, you know, went through the freaking roof. Right. And so FIFA said, Whoa, 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 we got to slow things down because there are teams who are taking on loads and loads and loads of debt. And then they get relegated and they can't pay that money back and they can't do, you know, and it sinks these clubs. It really screws them over for years and years and years, you know? And so FFP was created. Well, this by, by having these umbrella clubs, really what city football group does and, and, by design red bull as well is you have multiple places where you can buy these players right and then yes if you sell a player from new york to leipzig you want that sale to be as low as possible so that it doesn't count against you really in ffp right it's easier to add another two and a half million dollars onto your books than six and a half million dollars right and if you're making multiple transfers that adds up over time right and so there is a, a a symbiotic relationship. It's more than just the fact that like, you know, in a sense, it's like, well, why, why would we pay that much when we're really taking money from our left pocket and putting it into our right pocket? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of like that type of kind of nuance to it, right? The, the, the FFP being the biggest part. But I would also point out from an MLS perspective, this doesn't really hurt the Red Bulls. It hurts MLS mm-hmm. in perception, right? So, and it hurts MLS to a much smaller degree on the transfer fee. So going back again to single entity, MLS takes a 5% cut out of every transfer fee. It used to be 25%. It's now 5% besides homegrown players. So Caden Clark is not a homegrown player because his homegrown rights were owned by Minnesota. I don't think they classified him as a homegrown player. I have to go double check if MLS allowed them to classify him as a homegrown. But let's assume for right now that he's a home, not a homegrown player. And just to be 95%, clear, if they're homegrown, the team gets gets to keep all the money, and the league doesn't get hundred percent right. So then MLS really doesn't get impacted outside yep. of perception, right? For for New York Red Bulls, it doesn't really matter. You got to remember, out of any transfer fee, you can turn a million dollars of the transfer into GAM. Everything else above a million can be spent on, has to be spent on the team, but can't be spent on anything in the first team outside of designated players, discretionary money, right? So when you're selling it to your own owner, you're not really losing that money because if you're going to take, if you're going to go like Matt Miazga's transfer fee, help build part of the new training facility for the Red Bulls. But if you're selling it to your own owner and you're like, all right, well, it's going to cost $3 million for this new facility, not $1 million. Well, it's not really going to matter whether it's involved with the transfer fee or not. You're still calling the same guy saying, I need, I actually need 2 million more. Right. So it really doesn't impact the Red Bulls too much practically mm-hmm. with their benefits out of the transfer itself. And especially not when you go back to what we just discussed, which is that they didn't even have to send this kid to, to New York Red Bulls. They could have kept him at USL and sold him straight to Leipzig. 
And then they cut MLS out of this deal completely, right? And we're not even talking about MLS, but they wanted him, you know, the New York Red Bulls wanted him. They brought him up from USL and it made things a lot harder for Leipzig because now they have to negotiate with MLS. And MLS cares a lot about perception and understandably so. You know, they want the market to keep going up for MLS players. They want the market to, to go from $3 million or so, I think it's a little less actually for Tyler Adams, to $6 million. Now Tyler's played well. So now, the, you know, you go to get Brendan Aronson, he's $6 million. And now Weston McKinney's done well, who they didn't actually sell out of Dallas, but it, it prompts Juve to believe that they're getting a good talent. And then Romo thinks, okay, well, if, if they rate this kid, Brian Reynolds, we rate this kid, Brian Reynolds, and they're paying $8 million for him. And so the league looks at that and says, oh, we're kind of taking a step back if we're selling between two and 3 million for Caden Clark. I get that. I get it. However, you know, the market isn't blind to other factors. So they, they recognize that this is a Red Bull to Red Bull sale, for example. Also, Caden Clark has played... 370 minutes in MLS. Okay. That's a 10th of what we've seen from Brendan Aronson. It's Mm -hmm. less than a quarter of what we saw, even from somebody like Brian Reynolds, who's so inexperienced. So that factors in as well, right? There is still risk that Leipzig is taking on a 17 year old. Um, And then there's the sell on fee, right? So let's say they put a 20% or 25% sell on to a, a, two and a half million dollar transfer or $3 million transfer. Let's call it a $3 million transfer. You know, you've got to take that and say, okay, well, if they rate him at $3 million at 75% of his value, then his valuation is actually at 4 million, right? You add another million on for that last 25%. Is that that far off of what the rest of the world is going to pay for Caden Clark? I'm not so sure, man. Like Mm -hmm. what do we think Caden Clark is worth in the global market? I don't think he's a five or $6 million player. You know, once you start to get into that prices, you're starting to lower the number of teams who are involved, right? So um, I get what the league is talking about perception-wise, and I get why other, you know, other people are like, oh, it's not fair that Red Bull Leipzig is doing this. But in the grand scheme of things, it, it really isn't changing much. And really the biggest complaint, you know, Red Bull, New York Red Bulls fans who are complaining should should stop because what they're doing is they're they're basically using – New York Red Bulls as a pit stop. And as a result, New York Red Bulls are going to get a million dollars a GAM out of the deal. That's in value. I mean, there's so much value to GAM in Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. It's a huge, huge, huge advantage for the Red Bulls that they're making this sale. For anything more than a million dollars, it's a huge advantage. They're really not missing out. Yeah, no, 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 I'm with you. And it's it's interesting that, that you know, the, now you're, you know, you're having clubs like that making sell, you know, team to team sell. And, it, you know, right, then you get to see some of the creativeness of, you know, of those European clubs and, you know, how they're bringing up that talent uh, within the system. But look, Paul, I appreciate, man, all, all the information, you know, you gave us here, you know, educate us on everything. Um, for the people that don't already follow you, let them know where they can follow you and where they can reach your articles at. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on. You can find me on Twitter at Paul Tenorio. Um, T-E-N-O-R-I-O is how you spell that last name, where you can find me on The Athletic. And our team is at The Athletic S-C-C-R. Um, that's where all of our, our stories get put up on Twitter. So, um, you know, thank you for having me on. Thank you for subscribing, like I said before. And uh, yeah, hopefully all your listeners find some something interesting in this podcast and, and, and know that they'll find plenty more of it over at The Athletic.
Yeah, no, I, I definitely will. Guys, make sure, like I said earlier, give give this man a follow. Subscribe to Athletic, especially if you're a big MS fan. They they cover the league really, really well. And I, I recommend it. It's $60. It's, I mean, you can make that money back easily with all the knowledge that they give you. If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to give this a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to this podcast wherever you get your music. You can also listen on Spotify. You can follow me on Twitter at Gio Garcia LA. And make sure to also follow us on LA Soccer Hub on Instagram and Facebook. For, for Paul, this is Gio. We'll catch you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.